1: Hey, before we get going here, I have a quick word from our sponsor, Marketing Profs University. Uh, Regardless of what your job is right now, it probably involves writing, Uh, whether you're writing journalism, uh, writing a novel. Press release, website copy, or even an email to your boss. Uh, writing is integral to most jobs' day-to-day responsibilities. And like any skill, writing doesn't get better without instruction and practice. Uh, that's why the people who do Marketing Profs University created the Marketing Writing Bootcamp. It's an online course that starts June 11th. Um, you'll learn from a dozen great instructors in the world of marketing writing. You'll get writing tips, new techniques for enhancing your style. And you'll learn to write with a relentless focus on your audience. Because it's totally online, you can do it on your own schedule, you can do it on your commute, from your phone, from your desktop, wherever you can do this course, it will fit into your schedule and your life. And as a special incentive to our listeners, if you go to mprofs.com slash longform and use the promo code longform, you'll get $200 off the Marketing Writing Bootcamp and over $1,000 worth of Marketing Profs seminars, classes, and video tutorials for free. Thank you, Marketing Profs University. Here's the show. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with my co-hosts Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff. Good afternoon, guys. We haven't been in the same room in a long time. It feels good. It feels great. I just uh, I'm just back from Tokyo. Uh, you will notice in the uh, interview that is about to happen that I am in several different places at once. Uh, I have now returned to full vigor. It seems like Tokyo uh, really agreed with you. I I really enjoyed Tokyo. I could I could start a whole podcast about my uh, my enjoyment of Tokyo, (laughs) your love of Tokyo. This is like the fourth or fifth other podcast that you've proposed possibly starting on this podcast. I actually, I have a really good concept for another podcast, I'll tell you guys off-air, that like that synthesizes all of my ideas for other podcasts <laughs> into one idea. Finally, Levercast. <laughs> in the meantime, who did you talk to this week? Uh, I talked to Rachel Syme, who is a um, prolific freelancer, writes a lot of uh, profiles of artists, both uh, music and in uh, TV and entertainment. Um, she's an interesting person, a real hustler, who goes out and really pursues these stories pretty intensely. That Broad City piece is great. Broad City that piece That was, was like the, uh, the Broad City piece i had been waiting to read. That story is really good. She had a profile of uh, Zelia Banks and Billboard recently that was really good. Um, we talked a lot about like negotiating celebrity access and how this stuff works with publicists. It's a good uh, hands-on episode for people who are interested in that kind of reporting. What about sponsors? Any sponsors this week? Oh, man. We got a couple we got a couple. One of them is Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store. If you use the code LONGFORM at checkout, you get 10% off. Thanks, Squarespace. If you want people to check out your writing, why not start a tiny letter newsletter? It's a simple but very effective way uh, to get up from zero to 60 with a newsletter right away. It's from the good people at MailChimp. They're our long-term sponsors, and we love them for it. And now here's Aaron with Rachel Syme. I'm gonna pause in my digestion of that <laughs> pad thai to welcome my guest, Rachel Syme. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: You are a part of a breed that that doesn't like appear on this show as much as it did. I feel like early on in the show, which is you are a true freelancer.
2: Right now, yes. True freelancer.
1: You write many stories uh, for many publications. I would say the main connective thread among them is you seem to write about artists, Mm -hmm. and you seem to write about artists that you like. So you've done uh, recent profiles of um, Broad City. Yeah, the the girls from Abby and Alana. Abby and Alana um, from Broad City. You did a, a profile of Aze- Aze- Azealia Azealia Banks. okay, I almost said that. Wrong. Both of them, I think, sort of convey a certain empathy for for the the people who are the subjects of them, and and a, and what I saw is sort of a true fandom of of what they were doing. W- what I'm wondering about is when you start a piece, let's sure. say this um, the piece about Broad City, which you did for Grantland. Yes, how like how do you pitch a piece like that? Like how do you? How do you, like, everyone loves Broad City. I like to smoke a joint and watch Broad City. Who doesn't? What what do you tell an editor you're going to bring to a piece like that?
2: Broad City was an interesting uh, one to take on because... I loved the show from the time it was a web series um, back early days and always thought maybe one day I would want to write about it. And when it transitioned to television, I was a huge obsessive fan. Um, and then The New Yorker did a piece. Uh, Nick Palmgarten did a piece that came out last summer called Id Girls, which was this first major profile of them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people feel when The New Yorker does a profile of someone, that's the end all be all. It's basically over, right? Or that's the last word on the, in the game. And I read the piece and I really liked it. I think Nick did a great job. But I also thought that it didn't totally capture, as a woman living in New York City, my sense of Broad City and Uh and the way that I experience it with this sheer sense of love and the way it depicted female friendship. And I... Um, had just sort of become acquainted with my editor at Grantland, who's named Dan Fearman, who is an amazing editor, who was asking me for ideas, and I said, you know what? I know this just came out, but Broad City season two is going to come in the in the um, winter, and I would love it if I could do something on Abby and Alana, and. It turned into a much bigger thing. You know, we thought maybe it was just going to be an interview. We thought maybe it was going to be a kind of sneak peek of the new season. But as I uh, started looking into it, I realized what I really wanted to do was watch them work. Mm -hmm. Because I thought that uh, something that the the first profile didn't do was necessarily get into their process. And and as someone who's kind of a woman and also the same age as them and kind Kind of their peer.
1: Kind of a woman.
2: Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I say kind of as a modifier. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, uh, someone who is a woman and the same age as them and could sort of enter the situation as a peer, I thought I might get something different out of it than uh, the first reporter did. And I think it's always uh, scary to take on subjects that somebody else has has taken on before you. But also, I kind of have this weird streak in me that feels like that is the most fun challenge, where you say, I'm going to be the last word on this. And of course, I wasn't, because, you know, four weeks later, the New York Magazine cover came out, which was yet another huge profile of those girls. So I think you have to, but you have to attack every piece as if you're going to be the final word on the subject. So when
1: you say like, okay, yeah. you don't know, this is going to be like a like a sneak peek, or sure. it's going to be like a, you know, a phone or interview, like, how does something like that escalate? Like, like, do you tell the editor, like, hey, I think I could go more? Or I think like, both in terms of managing the, the expectations of the <laughs> publisher, and sort of the subject, how do you get a big piece instead of a little piece?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So with Broad City, I think it was a lot of sort of it was a perfect alchemy of things. First of all, they really loved Grantland, and they thought it would be a good venue for them. So coming to them with the actual venue of where it was going to be, I came saying that I wanted to do a Grantland piece. Sometimes when I reach out to people, I just say, it's me. Hey, I'm really interested in you. Um, would you like to do a piece? And then I bring access to a specific magazine. It kind of works both ways. When you're a true freelancer, you have to do it both ways. Right. Uh, but in this case, I came to them and said, uh, I'm with Grantland, want to do this piece, and I also immediately out front said, and I'm going to need a lot of access. I mean, that was the first thing I asked for. I said, I want to go on set. I want to have more and more time with them. And, you know, I kept pushing. So I went on set. That was the first time I ever met Abby and Alana. And um, as you can read in the intro to my piece, it was a sort of Really wild introduction to them because I watched Alana have sex with a tree as my first interaction yeah. with them. Uh, and, you, a tree. and you had
1: been dealing with them direct, like when you're setting. I've a been dealing with
2: life. Comedy Central. Comedy they Central. finally hired publicists after I, it was a very lucky thing that happened because uh, one of the things that's really tough in the world of uh, profiling and celebrity journalism and getting tougher and tougher is this sort of system of celebrity publicists and their love of saying no. Um, and their sort of gatekeeper mentality. And also because now celebrities can kind of control their own narrative via Twitter and Instagram. People find profiles less and less effective, less and less desirable, unless it's for you know uh, the cover of Vanity Fair or Women's Magazine or something that will allow them to wear a lot of couture. So I went on set. I was there for six hours. I got to talk to both of the girls, but I thought at that point I had not gotten enough. So then we had a lunch um, and I watched them edit an episode. And at that point, most people would have said, I have six hours plus another four hours, that's enough. But I really felt like they were in a really tired place, sort of like how you are coming back from Tokyo, (laughs) because they were in the middle of their editing process, and they were strung out. And we went to this sort of really... weird fluorescent halogen diner where everybody looks sallow and we were the only people there and so I wanted to have one more interaction with them when everything was over and so we had yet another lunch which I pushed for which initially um, they pushed back on and said I think we've done enough and I said well look I don't think the piece can go on unless I have one more interaction we did and then finally I went to the premiere where I had yet another really blessed interaction with those girls because as I was getting out of the cab to go to the premiere my friend Alex who came with me uh, crunched her heel on something on the floor uh, of uh, on the ice outside and it turned out have be Alana's cell phone so it was this weird serendipity where at the party I got to go find them and say I have your phone so th- <laughs> so it was actually like an amazing kicker to the piece that I couldn't have planned better
1: that's sort of a skill where you're like I need another day I need yeah. I need more is that something that you've had to develop over time I mean like I don't Absolutely. have I don't have that quality when someone like says no I'm like cool I would never ask you again because I'm like I am so like uh, shattered by, by this no like I like, think
2: that you have to fight for your own peace and you have to decide where the rhythm is is and what you where the lacunae are and what you're missing and yeah. if you're still missing it you're allowed to ask for it I mean they can say no a thousand times you can ask a thousand times I think a lot of people are afraid of making that ask because they think that in this formula, like the celebrity or the artist or whoever they're interviewing is more important than them and if they right. say no then, you know, yes, you must respect them and their time. The the point is it's both people enter into a profile. In my opinion, both people enter into a profile trying to get something out of it. It's all part of the sort of machine of how culture works and how people learn about something new that they're going to love. And you want to do those people service. And you can only do them service if you get what you need. I mean, I'm currently reporting another feature for Grantland, which um, I guess I can say here.
1: No one listens to the show. (laughs)
2: <laughs> I'm I'm uh, doing a, a big profile on the band TLC. Who, uh, yeah, who uh, are reunited? You
1: heard, it, you heard it here first. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I've spent a lot of time with Chilli and T-Boss. Uh, well, Chilli majorly, actually, and this is kind of a fun story. So, you know, when I, uh, I I met them initially for lunch in New York City, they're reuniting and they were. Doing this Kickstarter, as I think you may have seen or anyone out there may have seen, to do their new album, which will be their first in 12 or 15 years. I can't remember the exact date. Immediately when I saw that, I thought, oh, my God, I love TLC. I've loved them. Crazy Sexy Cool was my first album. So then again, we're going to Things I Like. I think actually you're right. Enthusiasm is the first thing that really gets me excited about doing it. Have you
1: ever profiled someone you strongly disliked? I guess you're probably I not going to say, say it. Okay, I mean say. I mean, I, yes, ha- I have profiled
2: have... someone who I thought was extremely difficult to sure. deal with, but I thought ultimately was a genius.
1: Okay. Um,
2: uh, but no, I, I actually feel like I've been pretty lucky in that I haven't been profiling many jerks or um, people who I thought had no cultural value. Earlier in my career, when I was doing a lot of sort of puff pieces just to pay my rent, I think I interviewed some people I thought were sort of hacks or, you know, just getting by on their face yeah. with nothing to author the world. But no, I, I, I've been really fortunate. I don't do many profiles of men. So that might be one of those things. I think I gravitate Conscious- towards women.
1: Consciously? Absolutely
2: or consciously. Okay. I actually uh, made a vow to myself that in 2015, I wouldn't do any um, profiles of men. But that's actually changed now <laughs> because I uh, got a chance to profile someone really fabulous. That's I can't talk about yet. But um,
1: by choosing to not profile men, except when the the opportunity is fabulous, um, <laughs> you're in some ways making it harder for yourself to get to get stories.
2: It's actually easier for me to pitch women in a lot of ways, especially to publications like Grantland, which might be more male skewed, right. where they think, oh, this is a girl. She's going to talk to these girls. She's going to get the goods. And ultimately, that is... Weirdly. That's not it's what happens, but right. it's also, you know, I guess, but in my own mind, one of the reasons that I want to do it is because I want to highlight the work of women. And, yeah. and my impulse is to turn my attention and my focus. And, you know, it takes a lot of that out of me every time I write one of these. I mean, it's not easy every single time, even though I'm turning them out. You know, it takes a lot out of me. And so if I'm going to spend so much time researching someone, thinking about their work, watching everything they've ever done, spending a lot of time with them, spending a lot of time talking to people who've ever worked with them, then I want it to be somebody that I think is really worthwhile. And right now, where I am in my life, that just tends to be women.
1: Hey, I'm going to pause things here with a quick word from our sponsor, The Great Courses. Uh, Every week on this show, I talk to a nonfiction writer. I know a lot of our audience has been inspired to try this line of work themselves, and they need a place to start. A great one is this course... Writing Creative Nonfiction from the Great Courses, taught by an award-winning professor and New York Times bestselling author, Tilar J. Maceo. Uh It's a way to get from the, the very start of the writing process through creating characters, uh, making things compelling for your audience, all of the tools of the trade. Um, I really recommend it. The Great Courses is a lecture series with more than 500 courses. They've been around for 25 years. It's taught by real professors. Um, You can stream them online or download them or watch them on DVD and CDs. And for a limited time, you can get eight of their best-selling courses, including writing creative nonfiction, for up to 80% off the original price by going to thegreatcourses.com slash longform. That's thegreatcourses.com slash longform. You'll be supporting this show and getting your writing career going today. Our next sponsor is Squarespace. Uh, Squarespace is dear to my heart because before I started Longform, I used to make little websites for people and inevitably I would turn something off on the server or forget to uh, re-register the domain and boom, the site would be gone and people would be pissed off at me. Now, whenever I have a friend who has a bakery or a band or an online jewelry store they want to get off the ground, I send them to Squarespace because it is the simple way to get a powerful website. When I say powerful, I mean responsive design, looks great on the iPhone, looks great on the desktop, uh, 24-7 support so you can figure out all the tricky parts. And it's only $8 a month and that includes a free domain if you buy it for the year. Um, This works for everything from a personal site, you can get up a beautiful one-page online presence in mere minutes, to pretty powerful e-commerce. So if you have a site that you're looking to build, I think you should start a free trial with no credit card required. You go to squarespace.com and use the offer code longform, you get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for our show. Everybody wins. You get a great website. We keep doing this thing. Here I am back with Rachel Syme. You profile a lot of women who yeah. I would say are between the ages of uh, 23 and 33, we'll yeah. say. Um, do, do you bond with, with the subject of these profiles? like Do you feel, feel like when you're hanging out with, let's say, the Broad City girls or uh, any of these people who, you know, in some ways are part of your sort of cultural world in New sure. York City, they're part of your cohort, sure. say, um, what is that vibe like? Do you see that? Is, a, is it a, a very pe- sp- peer feeling? Or? It's a
2: peer feeling, but it's also a strange vibe, Erin, right? Because, for example, with Abby and Alana. We're not we're not currently friends now that that profile came out. I mean, Abby and I follow each other on Twitter. I don't think Alana does, but uh, they they you know I haven't I never heard from them again after it came out. So you don't
1: even really know whether they liked it or not. I
2: heard that they liked it from their people, but you know you can never know that. You can't trust people. Yeah, you can't trust you know nefarious people that are guarding (laughs) guarding guarding people's reputations. But no, I mean I I have a a very contentious relationship with my own job because Mm -hmm. I think that. I'm a personable person. I'm a chatty Kathy. I kind of tend to be, I'm small, I'm 5'1". I'm, you know, I have this high-pitched kind of bubbly voice and I think that people do tend to bond with me and I tend to bond with them. I think there's 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 different ways of reporting, right? Yeah. There are the interviewers that go in and they're incredibly stoic and they just ask this list of questions and sort of let the other person fill in the silences with their own quotes, which I often do. I read the room and see what's going to get the best material if you have somebody that is a talker. Or you just let them go. You don't put yourself in it all. But if you have people that need you to meet them halfway, I do it. And and in that process, it feels like you're making friends. Right. There's this moment where you're, there's a transference where you're talking about your own life and then they're talking about their own life. But there's something deeply unfair about that, right? Because if I talk about, you know, ex boyfriends that have screwed me over and then they talk about it, I get to quote them.
1: Right. No one's uh, writing. A, right, no one's Your right. stuff doesn't and, end up in the and, story. And
2: so that confessional aspect of talking to another woman your your same age who has your same patois. Who's from yeah. your same sort? Especially people like Abby and Alana, who are like Jewish brunettes from Brooklyn, which is what I am. Yeah, you have this sense that you're bonding, but at the same time, you're also going to betray them because you hear a quote that they say, or you see a an mannerism, a mannerism that they display, and you write it in your notebook, and you think, "I got it, I right. got it." And th- and that moment when you think you got it, that's when you sort of get pretty sad in your brain a little bit because you're like, "They don't know I got it, but I got it."
1: Did you get that? Relationship off the bat or is that something you've sort of had to that you've developed? I mean, I imagine that yeah. that a lot of young reporter, mm-hmm. a lot of young reporters sort of thrust into situations like this. You do feel like you're friends, maybe, or, or you're like, maybe we could be friends and maybe In I should life. try and protect yeah. that. I mean, was that is that has that been something that that's evolved for you?
2: Yeah. At- yeah. And I think there are moments where I've had to really check myself and say, Rachel, you know, you're not these people's friends and you won't be because you decided to enter into this relationship as opposed to meeting them in the outside world in some way. And if and and this is this is the calculus. And and that and that is something that I've had to learn. I wouldn't even say the hard way. It's not like I've you know tried to pursue anyone after and said, oh, but I thought we were friends. Yeah. But I think there is a sense when you finally put the piece out and it's out there and it lives, and then you and then there's this sort of sense of like. It's a late elation and then kind of divine sadness because you think, okay, that's out there, and also like that whole bubble of a magic relationship that we were in the whole time I was writing about them. That's over. It's over and always, right. and move on. And you know, there are certain people that I've profiled, and and you know, say Azalea Banks, yep. who. We bonded that night to a kind of extreme degree in that uh, she cooked me dinner. Her friend came over. We ate this dinner all together. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of hoopla. There was a lot of like dancing and music and laughing and jumping around. And then after the piece came out, she hated it. Oh, really? And, okay, so we uh, had a conversation that was wide-ranging, and I will tell you that, and this is something that, you know, I'm happy to discuss also, uh, there was a lot of pushback with my editor, who is a great editor, called Nick Catucci at Billboard Magazine, Um, but there was a lot of pushback about what to include, what not to include, and I was pretty... um, Well, I wouldn't say trepidatious, but I had a lot of concerns going into the piece and made them known before I even went into the interview that I thought that Azealia was a really wonderful artist and somebody who was incredibly complicated and sometimes her own worst enemy. And I didn't want to hang her on her own quotes or, you know, she just came off of doing this Playboy interview where she had been interviewed by a white male and said a bunch of really raunchy stuff about her sex life and about how she hated fat white Americans. And, you know, Fox News was calling for her deportation. And I just said, I don't want to do another. You know, hit piece on Azealia because she actually has incredible musical talent and a, a real brain and, and a, a lot of amazing ways that she sees the world that are totally different than other people and I want to highlight that as opposed to just going in with uh, the ability to get, get her to say some crazy shit which she will because right. she has no filter because that's just the way her brain works. Well, um, in,
1: in a way that sort of like a, a form of cliche to write a story like that. Because yeah. you're basically. So I wanted to do something a little bit more Pre knowledge of how right. someone right. will and react to And that was sort of my condition stimulus. for going
2: into the piece. Yeah. Um, and initially, I, I, didn't, I, I wasn't even sure that I was the right one to do it. I mean, I said, Do you have a, a person of color you can send? Do you have somebody that is, you know, more of a hip hop journalist? And ultimately, Nick and I came to the. I, mean, I was always a fan of Azalea's and I've listened to, you know, um, Broke with Expensive Taste, like until it's worn out on my iPod or whatever, if you can do such a thing. But I, you know, we had a lot of back and forth. And finally, you know, this is kind of an interesting thing. We decided, you know, it's she may, she hasn't really talked to a lot of women. Maybe she'll open up to you. And also, like, you know, you seem to have a sensitivity for what you want to say. So we went in. We had this great time. And there was a lot of things that were said, which will never, ever emerge, that weren't the quotes that I ever wanted to include because I didn't think they represented her. But one of the quotes that did get in, which was fairly innocuous, was that she said she had a crush on Barack Obama, Yeah, that she wanted to sleep with him. Yeah. That was hilarious. And we like cracked up. If you heard the transcript at the time in the kitchen, I think I like clapped. I was laughing so loud.
1: It's a fairly benign. Uh, benign yeah. And comment. we were like
2: cooking and then like chicken was boiling. And it was just like every. And that was just part of a rapid fire series of like people she was saying that she would, you know, sleep with or, or people she thought could get it. And like it was just great. And then that sort of emerged and all of these publications, you know, the Us Weeklys of the world picked it up. And She, I think, got very defensive and upset about that, as would I, that that was the part of the profile, which included a lot of other interesting facts about her, including the fact that she's writing a book, that she believes in uh, witchcraft and sort of otherworldly things, that she wakes up every night at 3 a.m. and gets stoned and, like, talks to herself in a mirror until she works herself into a psychosis where she can write. Like, there's some, she reads Walfald or Emerson. There's some really interesting things going on inside this girl. And I thought that they picked up the least interesting things and then ran with them. And she was upset about it. So she put something, I think, on Instagram saying, this wasn't my favorite interview. I don't know if it was the journalist. I don't know if it was the editor, but I feel like they don't give me enough credit or something like that. She then took that down and actually her people... The nefarious "quote unquote" people got in touch with me and said, "You know, I think it's 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 all going to blow over." But that was one of those things where I felt extremely like I had actually going into it a sense of wanting to do justice here, right. It, do right by her, and and you know sometimes you can't ever win.
1: I'm interested in the in the sort of setting of that story, which is like so you're um, cooking dinner with her. I always like think that these sort of setups and profiles are interesting. Where yeah, it's like she
2: wanted to do that. That was her idea.
1: It's a weird like alchemy of, of sort of staged and natural. Mm-hmm. It's like a staged version of what of a natural that activity. person would think is a natural activity. And right. it's like different people have, like, you, you see them sort of repeat, you know, different sort of tropes in, in like, the thing that we did together. I
2: know. I always think about what would I have someone do with me if I was being profiled. I was thinking if,
1: like someone came over to my house like for for a profile. I'd be like, so do you like want to watch like John Oliver and then right. sit I'd on this like, couch Right. I'd be like, do you want to get stoned and watch
2: an eight part PBS documentary on yeah. the history of New York City? Because yeah. that's what I want to do. Yeah.
1: Like the idea that I would All be like hours. cooking an elaborate meal with a stranger is so far out of the. Ba- I like barely would do that with people I'm closely friends or I'd with. Or
2: just be like, do you want to go to Barney's? Yeah. And so- buy everything. <laughs> (laughs)
1: So, like, how does a uh, chicken—it was a chicken dinner?
2: Yeah. Okay. She wanted to make a chicken and dumpling soup. It was her grandmother's recipe. How
1: does that, like—how does that get set in stage? At what point do you hear about cooking chicken in the process? Well,
2: that was a totally Azealia-generated idea because she felt like nobody had really seen another facet of her, and she loves to cook. That's a huge passion of hers, and she's excellent at it. The chicken soup I had was hands down—I don't know if I—if you out there have ever had transcendent chicken soup, but that's what this was. It was, like— umami and like unctuous. it was so good Um, and so she wanted to show another side of herself I think that was like a little bit more domestic a little bit chilled out Um, and you know I think that that was a savvy move on her part but it was completely generated by her but then again there was this artificial real quality to it because she didn't want to do it at her own apartment Because her own apartment was, you know, a total wreck and she has five pets and she was, you know, running all over and going to Japan the next day. So she had stuff everywhere. So we did it in this uh, really sort of sterile midtown Airbnb kitchen that then her team had staged beforehand so that she could cook in. So it, it was that sense of like artificial real that you always get. And the same thing happens every time. Like you know, and and when you're pushing for more and more access, you're trying to get closer and closer to something real. So right. I think maybe this is the part where I can loop back around to the TLC stuff when we were talking about pushing I'm, for more I, access.
1: Anytime you use the phrase looping back to TLC, I'm in favor of it.
2: <laughs> pushing for more so the first time I had lunch with them it was at a very fancy restaurant in New York City. Yeah. And that's not a classic T-Boss Chili situation ever. But, you know, I mean, yes, they're fancy ladies, but, you know, they were, obviously it was very formal. Yeah. And also, um, they're one of their... publicist was there, um, which we can, you know, that's a whole other thing about whether or not you can have a publicist around when you're doing one of these profiles. My general feeling is no, never, but sometimes you have to put up with it to get access further down where you don't have them there. There's like sort of trust levels. Yeah, and then the second time, when I went out to L.A., I was going to go to the studio with them, which seemed like a very natural thing to do, but T-Boz got sick, so Chili was the only one who was there. Um, So I had to see her in a hotel room, and then the next day I went to the Grammy gifting suite and walked around with her, which was a, an amazing experience and a closer thing to what really TLC goes through. And right now, that could be enough for a whole piece, right? Like yeah. walking around f- for a whole day with Chili from TLC. I got a lot. But at the same time, again, in my own brain, I know that the piece isn't done. So I'm, I'm going to go back to LA soon and see them do rehearsals for their upcoming arena tour because I want to see them in a, yet another environment, a little bit more. I want to see them interacting. I want to see how everything's coming together. For me, it's about... Creating these scenes that approach the real as much as possible, and also get to see them sort of unaware of the journalistic process. I mean, that's that that I think that with Abby and Alana too is like I kept pushing to get an interaction with them that was a lot more naturalistic than, you know, there's yeah, a, there's a reporter in the room. Let's talk about
1: that. Like, yeah, what, how do you put so like. Every single scenario you've described, from the chicken cooking to the like walking around at the Grammy gift mm-hmm. bag ceremony, I'm um, when I imagine the person, I imagine someone performing for you, or 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 in some ways an an artificial environment. But that's
2: it, that's that's what you enter into. You're always performing. I'm performing for you right now.
1: You are performing for me right now, but the stakes of the performance are pretty clear. Like I've invited you to come here yeah. and put on some headphones. You're not acting like it's not like we're just hanging out at your house right now we're right. in a studio with right. microphones right. here and i'm interviewing you right. whereas there's a kind of performance where it's like we're like friends cooking like this is natural right sort of and and yet it i'm assuming that must be somewhat awkward at, at times at least
2: sure the first 10 minutes are always like hey like i'm here to try to caps uh, like encapsulate everything about you from spending the next hour with you right right Let's do it.
1: And you don't know anything about me and you haven't read my other pieces and you don't really know what my intentions are. Right. Like, hey, let's go. So when you say you sort of push for the natural, how does one push for the natural? Well, the more and more
2: interactions you can get with someone, the more comfortable they feel with you. Yeah, first of all. So it's just a time thing. You don't always get the luxury of that. And, you know, a lot of the big pieces uh, that I'm doing, I try to get more and more time. Um, but often, often for like a one page or, or like a short profile, you don't yeah. get you, you get an afternoon. I mean, I, I just did Laura Marling for T Magazine and I and I got three hours with her, which was which is a lot. I went and I flew to London and she cooked me lunch at her house. Yeah. And that was actually the most naturalistic thing I've ever done. was the
1: meal that someone's ever cooked. It you was in so good, hour. actually. Oh. was
2: vegan yeah. and it was like coconut roasted cauliflower and chestnut puree mashed with like beets it was so delicious would you would
1: you mention it if someone um, cooked you a terrible meal
2: uh yeah totally okay but it was actually delicious um and fit right in the narrative of what she was trying to talk about which is this time she went to la and basically almost joined a cult and became a vegan and um but yeah and that was like an amazing interaction but again it was one afternoon at her house mm-hmm. and you and and immediately we were also sort of fast 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 friends um, in terms of being able to talk to one another. But there is there is that strange equation where you say after this is over and it's so awkward, you're like, I'm going to leave. And like, you know, do we hug? Do we handshake? Like we just had you just like basically poured out your soul to me. You don't know how I'm going to use it. I walk away. I have all this stuff in this little recorder in my bag yeah. and I don't know what I'm going to do with it either. And there's this sort of moment afterwards where you just like take a deep breath on the street and you're like, that was weird. And it's that sort of Janet Malcomy feel of just like, you know. And now I have to go betray this person by telling the truth.
1: I'm interested in the idea, like you you brought up in in the the context of that uh, Laura Marling Marling, um, profile, um, this period where, you know, she had been a sort of a precocious star and that she sort of freaked out and dropped out of society and moved to L.A. and kind of got into some. Culty, Crystal like, yeah, yeah, and it's a great story. Yeah. Like it, what it's not is an explicit description of her art. It's the backstory to the sure. art. And I wonder how you view when you're profiling an artist, The sort of balance between um, mythology and sort of practical, like this is a person who like makes songs, they have, they they really exist and you can listen to them. Like, do you feel any obligation to describe the art itself or is it sufficient to sort of set the stage for it like that?
2: You know what? I have to tell you, it actually depends on the publication for which you're writing. Interesting. Um, Because I would love to talk more about the art of everybody that I write about. I think that for me, the main interest in going into it is the art. Like With Laura, I love her songwriting. I think she's a brilliant and once-in-a-lifetime kind of singer-songwriter. And that was what drove me to want to write about her. And I wish I could have done a lot more dissection of the way she writes songs or the way she plays the guitar, which is this incredible sort of peculiar picking style that she learned from her father. And if I'd been writing it for, say, The New Yorker, I would have been able to go deep on the mechanics and the technique or pitchfork or something like that. But because it was for T, the style magazine of the New York Times, which is a wonderful publication, we had to do a lot more about the mythology and about what makes her sort of a stylish person in the world and like a, a, and an interesting character that maybe you want to follow. For Grantland, for example, I got to write a lot about the art. I, yeah, I, uh, the that editing piece, process. Uh, yeah. yeah, that piece was a lot about how that show is made really detailed, and that was yeah. what I was most inter- interested in because I think when you're working with a partner the way that those two did, I was really interested in sort of the uh, collaboration and the way that the push-pull between two women who are trying to make a cultural product together comes together. And that, I was fortunate to get to expand on that. So I think I... And, you know, as I, I, you know, my career is sort of, I, I would actually say closer to just getting started than not. And and as I'm searching out publications I want to write for, I think more and more what I'm learning is that I, I like to write for places that allow me to not just tell five facts about this person as a way to understand what they're doing. Right. But I think they're, there, the, you know, the mythology about people is important. I think artists in a lot of ways create their own mythology and spin their own images. And that is deliberate and that is conscious and people's choices Um, define them. And I think that you can use choices and signposts in people's life as a way to tell a story about them as well.
1: I I certainly agree with you that there's not sort of a like a like a strong line in the sand of like, this is the mythology and this is the music. Like that's never been how anything worked. But when you're putting together a piece, is that something you just sort of can feel like, hey, these T Magazine people are not going to want a bunch about like finger picking style and this? Or is that something where you end up where you write that part of the story? And then it gets cut out. Like, how do, how do you, I guess, how, how do you learn what people want?
2: Be <laughs> I think if I have any wisdom to impart, it's that you learn different editorial languages the way you learn any other language. And you have to become fluent in them and in the language of the magazine. And it feels like, obviously, the best, best, best never change their tone for anybody. And I don't think I do either. I think that in a lot of ways, it's always me. All these pieces are me. Yeah, But you learn in your own natural rhythm about how to create something after talking to your editor a lot that both of people would come to a conclusion that they were happy with and they thought best represented the, the magazine but also my ideas and that I think comes mostly from like I, I just said intense conversations with my editor. I'm like a yeah. very editor heavy writer. I love to talk to my editors a bunch. Like if you hire me like we'll, we'll talk and, and I, I will get a sense of both both of us going into it even before the interview and then after like what we're both sort of aiming towards. Though, again, I, I when I sit down to write it, I turn off
1: all noise. Do editors appreciate that?
2: I think so. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that I only work with people that want to do that.
1: Yeah. From the point yeah. when you were, like, 21 sure. and you were working at uh, New York as an intern yeah, it was my first. to, to my right first now job. where you have... Uh, your own apartment and a book deal, and a lot of what seems like a a lot of articles to write over the next year. <laughs> at, at what point along that journey were you able to do to write full time for a living? Like, how many years did it take before you were a full time, a hundred percent journalist?
2: Seven and a half, eight eight years ish. I think I went full time freelance in two thousand eleven, maybe. Yeah, I moved here in two thousand five. So right after I graduated college, I didn't go to grad school. I didn't get an MFA. I just started as an intern. Um, and and I was talking to uh, my editor, Mark, from Matter about this earlier today about how we feel like um, he's sort of in my same generation of journalists. And we feel like we were the last ones to arrive during this in weird cusp years where – There was no BuzzFeed. There was no Vice, really. Uh, There was no, I mean, it was around, but it wasn't what it is today. There was no all. There was no none of these places that young people could just enter into and get a job or write or have exposure. You had to pay your dues. Yeah. It was still this last generation of like, getting an editorial assistant job at a Condé Nast magazine was like the thing that everybody wanted to do when you arrived on campus. You know what I mean?
1: I mean, long form has only existed five years, and actually when you just look at the sort of annual statistics of it, you can see this happening. You can see that the first year it's New Yorker, New York Times, New Republic, and the um, pool of publications just that that have, you know, a, over say five articles uh, recommended at over the year. It just keeps getting wider and wider every year.
2: Right. And I think that there's a very interesting thing that kids can do now, which is they can get exposure even before they move to New York. Let's say they're writing for like Rookie Magazine or BuzzFeed or something when they're 18 and then they finally arrive here and maybe they get a job right away and they have this, you know, big platform and for all of the things that BuzzFeed maybe isn't the best set. I think it's it is a venerable and totally viable publication now, and a place you can get major exposure to major people. And you could do that. You can do that at twenty one years old now. That was just not possible for me. You know, you, don't you need, had to you get, don't get even people's need coffee. To
1: be an intern, per se. No,
2: I you know, and I got people's coffee for years. Um, and you know, I was fortunate to sort of rise quicker than a lot of people. And that, yeah, I became. I went to Radar, which was an independent publication. And so I got to just do a bunch there. I was writing articles from the get-go, editing a section. And then – but, you know, I think it's it's actually – that's something that I talk about a lot is like how I think it's interesting for young journalists now how you can kind of see the entire landscape because of the internet before you get here and then if you decide you want to move to New York and do it and a lot of people don't even have to that's the whole other thing but if you decide you want to you can have this kind of impeccable pedigree right your first job can be at BuzzFeed and maybe you write a few pieces for them and it goes well and then maybe you like get your first you know small piece of the New York Times or at the New York Times magazine because they're getting really hip now and then you sort of do that and maybe like one of your essays goes right and you get your first book deal and like and you can kind of do this
1: yeah i mean their generation doesn't seem that great to me really (laughs) i'm just kidding Uh,
2: (laughs) i think uh, they're smarter than we were
1: as you move into a a bright future i have a a final question which is um how do you deal with publicists you're you clearly have a way of getting what you want out of these profiles and and what you want seems like it's often in opposition to possibly what a, a publicist would want
2: well look i've had nightmares that I won't go into now where I've had interactions with publicists where they try to thwart you at every turn and, you know, we killed the story because of it. If you're out there trying to deal with a publicist, publicists are people too. They're not your enemy. They want you to be nice to them. It's a really good thing to have drinks with them when you don't need anything from them and to let them know who you are and the kind of pieces that you've done and if should they ever have anything for you and then when you finally can work together. But if you are reaching out to them with a need, I think the first thing to do is very succinctly express enthusiasm for what you're trying to do and give them a sense of the project. They get a million emails every day saying like, I'd like to write a story about Lily Tomlin. Maybe vaguely, generally, she has something coming out. What do you think? Instead, you have to be like, this is who I am. This is my vibe. This is why I think I want to do this story. This is exactly how I envision it going down. And like, this is why it's going to be good. And that gives them a lot more to work with. It's a little bit like, you know, um, dating. You know, it's like it's like every single time it's a first date. Right. So, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, it's probably not the job for you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you very much for Thank coming you. in, Rachel. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> That was the long form podcast. Uh, the show was edited by Jenna Weiss Berman. Uh, thanks to my guest Rachel Sine, my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, Max, who's our intern? Rachel Mae. Thanks to our intern Rachel Mae. Send send us an email. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, we're, we're we love we love to hear from the folks. All right, Be back next week. I would love to hear from you, Aaron. No thank you.